When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Howdy, everybody. CJ here, back with another dose of dangerous history. Welcome to episode 262 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be featuring an interview with historian and author Ryan S. Walters. Ryan S. Walters is an independent historian who currently teaches American history at Cullen College in North Texas. He is the author of The Last Jeffersonian, Grover Cleveland, and The Path to Restoring the Republic. Remember Mississippi, how Chris McDaniel exposed the GOP establishment and started a revolution. Apollo 1, The Tragedy That Put Us on the Moon, and his latest, which we will be discussing today, is The Jazz Age President Defending Warren G. Harding. So, this book, The Jazz Age President, is one that came out in, I believe, February of 2022. And at the time it came out, I was contacted by Ryan's publisher at uh, Regnery. And they sent me a review copy of the book to look over, and I was intending to have Ryan on my show to discuss this book about Warren Harding back last spring, spring of 2022. But of course, spring of 2022, I got bit by a dog, a whole bunch of other negative things happened to me, and I went on a bender and had a pretty rough 2022 overall, so... The interview with Ryan, I never got around to scheduling and never conducted, and it was just one of many things in 2022 that I had to set on the sidelines. But more recently, I heard from the publisher that the book was about to come out in paperback, and I was happy to take advantage of the opportunity to right the wrong of not having Ryan on back when the book first came out in 2022 to talk about it, because Warren Harding is one of the presidents I very much have a soft spot for, and he's definitely one of my favorite presidents, or one of, in my opinion, the least bad presidents, especially because, you know, he's arguably the last Republican president to have really made good on a lot of his campaign promises to roll back 
the overall size and power of the federal government. He was, in almost every way, the anti-Wilson candidate, and he won in a landslide in 1920 after two terms of Woodrow Wilson. And unfortunately, he did not undo all aspects of Woodrow Wilson's presidency and legacy, but to his credit, he undid a lot of it. More so, I think, than any other president since who has come in in the aftermath of an era of war and massive growth of government and that sort of thing. And when I was teaching, I would often say to my students that the standard establishment rankings of presidents are really in many ways upside down, not just for me because of my ideology, but really I would argue for just sort of regular middle and working class average people. The rankings of quote-unquote great presidents by establishment historians are really upside down because the presidents they tend to rank the highest are those that get the country into the most wars and conflicts and those who in general grab the most power, grow the government in general, and the executive branch in particular the most dramatically. And those are the ones that are the most likely to, you know, run up your taxes, spark huge inflation, erode your civil liberties, all these sorts of things. So presidents like Lincoln and Wilson and Truman and FDR and Teddy Roosevelt and so forth, tend to be ranked very highly, while presidents who just kind of keep the executive branch on an even keel and mostly leave people alone, and maybe even roll back some of the stuff done by their more big government predecessors, tend to get ranked very low. And Harding is often ranked at or near the bottom in the official rankings of presidents by establishment hacks. But I very much agree with Ryan Walters that... Warren Harding deserves a second look if you're at all a fan of things like peace, freedom, and prosperity. So anyway, um, I just will mention before I turn it over to my interview with Ryan that I'd just like to remind you that you can support my work via Patreon or Subscribestar on a monthly basis, and you can get all sorts of great benefits, bonus materials, and so forth depending on your level of contribution. And I'd like to remind you that you can still contribute a one-time contribution for various degrees of benefits and perks via Indiegogo to keep the DHP going. And in addition to that, if you haven't already, go over to DangerousBib.com. That's the word dangerous and then BIB.com to sign up for my email list. And you will also get... For free as a thank you, a copy of my dangerous American history bibliography. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Ryan Walters about the Jazz Age president, Warren Harding. Ryan, welcome to the Dangerous History Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about, um, I guess it's your most recently published book. It was uh, published in February of last year, but the paperback edition just came out, I think, on the 4th of July, if I'm not mistaken. 4th of July, that's right. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, so um, your publisher was kind enough to send me a copy of the book when it first came out. 
last year and I read it and I was intending to have you on the show to talk about it then. But um, last spring, uh, without getting into details, I had a giant cluster of uh, uh, problems and things going on um, that just completely overwhelmed me and um, got totally sidetracked and and ended up never having you on, even though I had read the book and liked it. So um, yeah, when your publisher um, emailed me a few weeks ago and said, Hey, the paperback edition is coming out soon. I was like, Oh, great. You know what? I can, I can get a second chance um, to to talk to Ryan about the book and kind of redeem myself and make up for what I meant to do last spring. So um, you wrote this book, the jazz age president about Warren Harding. And probably amongst just random lay people, one of the least known American presidents. And certainly from the establishment, which I think you and I are both very much in opposition to the establishment's take on history, (laughs) um, that, you know, the establishment, if they do talk about him, normally it's just to kind of crap on him and um, call him one of the worst presidents in all of American history. I was for a long time thinking about covering Harding from a more sympathetic point of view on my show. And then this book came out and I was like, Oh, great. You know, somebody already kind of told the story for me. So um, start off by asking you what caused you to want to write a book about Warren Harding in the first place. Yeah, that seems kind of strange, doesn't it? A lot of people thought I was crazy. <clears throat> and of course, like you, I was once in the sort of an academic world. I mean, I teach at a, at a, at a college in, in Texas, but things are a little bit different here. Um, not quite as bad, but I came out of that same world of academia. And you, you, you've you probably heard the same things I did. It's like they have a list of talking points about Harding. Well, he's the worst president ever. He's scandals and women and all of these things. Didn't know anything. He was dumb. Didn't accomplish anything. And that's all you ever heard in any lecture you had. And it just sort of got carried down. Nobody wanted to take a look at him. And most people knew he was a very conservative guy anyway, he and Calvin Coolidge. So you know how academic historians treat those types of presidents and politicians. And I would, during my graduate school years, I'd, I'd pick up little tidbits uh, about Harding. Um, I, I read a a column or two by Pat Buchanan where he mentioned some things that he did. And of course the John Dean book came out in 2004, the little American uh, president series from Arthur Schlesinger. And I thought, you know, this guy's, I think got getting, gotten a bad rap in history. And I started doing a little bit more digging. And actually when I was in graduate school, I sketched out the outline of what became the jazz age president. I said, I'm going to do a book on this guy one day. That was, gosh, that was almost 20 years ago when I did that. And when I got started with the book, I actually dug out my old notes and found where I had, you know, laid out how I wanted the book to go. And so I I talked to a friend of mine who wrote for Regnery uh, publishing. And I said, what do you, and I wrote a proposal and I said, what do you think about this? And he said, I think this is pretty good. Let me send it to him. And I was actually surprised within a day, they contacted me and said, yeah, we want to do it. So uh, I spent a whole year on Warren Harding and digging into the primary sources and exactly who the man was and what the man accomplished. Not what some academic historian said he did, but what did he actually do? And that was my goal. I said, I want to go beyond the John Dean book and I want to dig deeper into his presidency and, and to put his presidency in context. That's one thing I found that scholars deny him. I mean, this country was in 
bad shape in 1919 and 1920. And a lot of historians try to say, well, he wasn't a very good president because there was nothing going on when he became president. And I thought, well, are you crazy? I mean, 1919 was a terrible year. 1920 was a bad year. And people were ready for a return to normalcy, and they gave him over 60% of the vote. So I said, there's got to be more to this guy than what these academics say. And that's that was the goal of the book. Yeah, and in the book, you did something that I've also kind of done both mentally and on my podcast, which is to compare him with his immediate predecessor, Woodrow Wilson, which um, listeners to my show know my feelings about Woodrow Wilson. And um, I've been spending multiple years actually working on um, a huge historical narrative series that I'm still in the middle of just dissecting Woodrow Wilson's life and presidency and you know career, even pre-presidential um, in great detail. And yeah, you, you have to, the, the context is so important. And that's, that's what I appreciate. One of the things I appreciated about your book that this is after basically 20 years of progressive rule in yes. America, because mm-hmm. of course you had Teddy Roosevelt coming in very, very shortly into McKinley's second term after McKinley was killed. So, you know, we have almost eight full years of Teddy Roosevelt and then, yeah, we have four years of Taft, which is, you know, maybe progressive light, but, you know, still not like going back to Gilded Age uh, government. And then of course you have eight years of Woodrow Wilson during which, you know, everybody, um, who's, you know, at all hip to a kind of conservative or libertarian revisionist take on history uh, is going to know Woodrow Wilson's horrible from that perspective. Mm-hmm. That even before World War I, you get the Fed, you get the income tax, you get all these other giant progressive wish list programs passed. Then, of course, you get entry into World War I and all the um, horrible things that, that go along with that. But that basically you had more or less 20 years of progressive rule culminating in world war one and um as murray rothbard put it you know that's the fulfillment of progressivism really it's not not the kind of repudiation of it that some historians will say and so yeah the proof is in where these things led right just like the proof of you know california's governing philosophy is what's happening to california right now um that by 1920 people were unhappy with the the Wilson legacy and all this utopian progressivism and all of this, you know, liberal internationalist mm-hmm. uh, kind of proto neocon foreign policy. And yeah, the guy runs on return to normalcy and wins one of the biggest presidential, you know, majorities ever in American history still to this day. So um, could you talk a little bit more about how it was that Harding got nominated for president in 1920 and how he was able to kind of so effectively run against the Wilson and progressivism broadly kind of legacy and, and get such a huge win. Oh yeah. You got it exactly right. I mean, you have to put it in, in the immediate context, as I said, the, the years 1919 and 1920 were so bad and people were fed up with what was going on, but you're exactly right. You have to put it in even a larger context that the previous 20 years were uh, nothing but progressivism and people were tired of that. There had been a lot of changes. The, 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 the relationship between citizen and government, uh, you know, from Teddy Roosevelt to, to Harding, it was a, there was a big change in that. 
And I think it was just too much for people. They'd had enough of it. And of course, as you, as you said, World War One was the culmination of progressive. I remember being taught in, in college and grad school that progressivism ended in 1917 with World War One. And I thought, no, it didn't. I mean, pro- World War One was a progressive war. That's that you know, make the world safe for democracy and all that stuff. And people had had enough. And as you said, they reacted against it in 1920 with Warren Harding. And of course, in 1920. Um, Harding wasn't, he was more of a dark horse. He wasn't, he wasn't really seen as a, as a, a viable candidate or potential nominee. Now they had, uh, primaries in those days. They had just started the primaries in the early 20th century. And that was a, a way to try to get out of the old system of the political bosses choosing the nominees. Well, that's, that's true. In a lot of cases, the political bosses did do that. Of course, the convention had to acquiesce in that, but there was no there was no mechanism for the people to select a nominee. And Harding ran in some of the primaries and didn't do particularly well. But the primaries didn't really matter. There was only a handful of them, and there were some leading candidates. One of them was General Leonard Wood from the war. But a lot of a lot of the party bosses believe, you know, we we've got a potential to have a a, a deadlocked convention and a brokered convention. And who is an alternative candidate that we can turn to to keep a mess from happening here? Because the Republicans knew as bad as the country was in and and, and there was no polling in those days, but Wilson was not very popular at all. And they knew they had were probably going to win this election walking away as long as they didn't screw it up. So let's not have an ugly convention and a fight. So who who can we get that the convention will accept? And will be a viable candidate. And one name that came up was Warren Harding. Now, they didn't just pluck that out of thin air somewhere. Harding was a, a very well uh, Republican senator. He's very well liked. He was on the Foreign Relations Committee. He was instrumental in helping stop the League of Nations. Our membership in that Henry Cabot Lodge relied on him. Henry Cabot Lodge let him have the first speech in the Senate when they began to attack the League of Nations. I mean, he had been a convention chairman in previous conventions. And so he was well like there's actually some letters I found he exchanged between himself and Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt was thinking of running again in 1920. Of course, he died unexpectedly in January of 1919. But he actually considered Warren Harding as a possible running mate. Uh, They had exchanged some letters and things on a lot of different issues. So he was he liked Harding. So, you know, they this this so-called smoke filled room myth where that around and hey we'll get this guy Harding because he's a dumb and he's pliable and we can we can bend him to our will and he's an you know and and you know in other words he's like clay we can mold him into whatever we want that that's no there's no truth to that at all and I actually look at the history of conventions particularly throughout the 19th century when we when we, when we started having national conventions in the 1830s all nominees were chosen that way even Lincoln and others all of them were. And a lot of them, there were a lot of deals that were cut to get the nom- to get the support that you needed for um, the nomination. So it's it's really, but the idea that they chose him because he was dumb and pliable—that's really a myth that I attack. The system was what it was, and then later on they they changed it. It's really not until after 1968 that the primaries became the way to choose the nominees. I mean, before 1960, up until 1968, it was basically look. Her, Herbert uh, Hubert Humphrey won the 1968 Democratic nomination and didn't run in any of the primaries. 
uh, like Bobby Kennedy and others had done. I mean, he was able to still win it without doing it. So it's not until after 1968. So that was the system. So there's so tagging him with some sort of corrupt deal is is not true at all. And of course, I, I tackled the myth that he was a pliable president and would do what the party bosses want. I give a lot of examples that that's not the case. So they believed he was a good candidate. Of course, remember, even if the party bosses chose him and said, look, this is our guy, the convention delegates still had to vote for him. They had to they had to um, support him. And they did do that uh, overwhelmingly. It took a few more ballots to get the nomination for Harding. And, of course, to show and demonstrate that the convention was running things and not the bosses, the bosses wanted a, a liberal, progressive Republican to be Harding's running mate. Um, and Harding said, I'll take as a running mate, whoever the convention decides. And they nominated a senator from uh, Wisconsin who was very progressive. And the convention delegates shouted it down and started shouting Coolidge, Coolidge, Coolidge. That's who they wanted. And they overwhelmed the convention. And Coolidge was nominated and given the given the vice presidential slot. So that'll show you that the delegates were in no mood for progressivism either. And they said, we you know, we want to we don't want a ticket balance with, a, you know, a conservative presidential nominee and a, and a progressive running mate. They wanted two very strong America first conservatives in Harding and Coolidge. Now, Harding and Coolidge were different in personality, but they were they were identical in the way they saw uh, the role of government and, and, and policies like, you know, in domestic policy and foreign policy. They were identical. Um, so the convention, like the, I think, reflected the country and where and they wanted to go. It's interesting um, the the negative take that the establishment pretty universally has, like establishment academia, on Harding um, ever since. To contrast that with the actual people who were you know alive and were voters at the time, that you know he won a giant landslide in 1920, basically campaigning as. I am the anti Woodrow Wilson. I am the anti progressive guy. I mean, that's basically what he was, you know, quote unquote, dog whistling with his return to normalcy. And, um, you know, he had some, he had some great lines in some of those. If you actually go, as I know, obviously you have, but just for the listener, um, if you actually go and read some of Harding's campaign speeches and things, you'll be surprised. Um, he sounds, as we would say today, he sounds pretty based and, uh, says things like, the world needs to be reminded that all human ills are not curable by legislation, <laughs> you know, things like that, that are just complete um, rejections of the entire progressive um, ideology, top to bottom, the, this utopian ideology that you can just use the power of the state to kind of make everything uh, socially engineered exactly as you want it. That's one of my favorite quotes about Harding. I mean, that, 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 I think that says it all. I mean, we can't solve every problem by uh, the progressive way. We'll just pass a law and that'll fix everything or that doesn't happen. And that was, that was Coolidge's philosophy as well. Um, we can't cure all of these things and government's not the answer. So, and government had grown to gargantuan levels, not compared to now, but in those days, uh, you know, the, the budget was less than a billion dollars in 1914, 1916, before the, we got into the war. And by 1919, it was 20 billion dollars. And and the debt went way up and the deficit was out of interest. Taxes, that dreaded income tax that they passed. It was, you know, it was only supposed to be for the Rockefellers and, and the Morgans. You look at what the rates are in, in, in 1919. Everybody was paying it and the top rate was over 70 percent. 
It was the excess profits tax for business. Business considered themselves to be harassed by the Woodrow Wilson administration. So Harding and Coolidge come in with a totally different philosophy, a throwback, return to normalcy, the way we used to do things, and began to remove those government barriers and and get rid of as much of, of, of the things that Wilson had done as they could. Of course, they couldn't get rid of all of it, but they did a lot. Um, I mean, when Harding came in, he slashed the budget 50 percent right off the bat. I mean, think about a president doing that today and walk, you know, walking in the door and saying 50 percent of this is going out the door today. Um, and that's what happened. And taxes were cut and the, the economy took off in the 1920s when we removed the barriers. And, and we've never seen growth like that. So, yeah, he was running as the anti Wilson, you know, and, and it's interesting, Wilson. Uh, even though he had a stroke and, and they hid it from the American people and that kind of thing, you know, he was hoping he'd get the nomination in 1920. And of course, he didn't. He went to James Cox, who chose a young Franklin Roosevelt as his running mate. And Wilson was, you know, because the League of Nations was defeated. Wilson wanted that to be the main issue in 1920. He thought the people were with him. And and if we run on that issue, then the, he, he said in a cabinet meeting, there's no way people are going to elect Warren Harding. Well, not only did they elect Warren Harding, they gave him over 60 percent of the vote. He was the first president to get over 60 percent of the popular vote. He was the first Republican since Reconstruction to win a southern state. He won the state of Tennessee, which was so shocking. A Memphis newspaper said this wasn't a landslide. This was an earthquake. And it was. I mean, the, the, the Democrats were totally and completely repudiated in 1920. And it was the first election women had so women actually supported the Harding and Coolidge ticket uh, in mass. Yeah. And people who haven't studied it often don't realize just how bad of shape the economy was in circa, you know, 1919 to 1921 thereabouts that um, there's that book. I'm sure you're probably familiar with it. The, I forget the title is something along the lines of the forgotten depression of 1920. Mm-hmm. Um, James Grant, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. um, That it often gets overlooked because it lasted a relatively brief amount of time. It didn't drag on for over a decade like the Great Depression. But that, you know, 1919, 1920, by some measures, the economy was crashing very comparably to 1929. And yet, you know, by about 1922 it was doing pretty well and then of course we get the roaring 20s and you know harding i I guess the establishment tends to want to just um not mention that depression because then they'd have to uh grapple with well how did it get better so quickly under warren harding who's supposed to be you know the worst or second worst president of all time um you know so but could you tell us a little bit more about like the how bad the economy was and all the social things, you know, the the labor violence, race violence, whatever, um, and then a little bit more about how Harding fought that depression so successfully with a very different approach than we get later from either Herbert Hoover or FDR. Yeah, the country was in terrible shape. In 1919, um, we had a lot of internal strife. Remember, coming out of the war. Most people didn't think World War One would be over until at least 1919 and even 1920. Harding had that opinion as well. But, of course, it, it, it ended rather abruptly. And people were kind of shocked that the Germans surrendered when they did. Uh, we thought it would drag on. And so people were really happy 
and a lot of celebrations in the street because it was over so quickly. We had a minimal amount of laws. But of course, then in 1919, you get just uh, just so much strife and turmoil. We had a number of terroristic bombings. These anarchist groups were mailing bombs to people. He had labor strikes across the country, which in the mind of most Americans, both of those, uh, the, the bombings and and the labor strikes were Bolsheviks. You know, you remember the Soviet Union came into existence in 1917 and communist revolutions were breaking out in Germany and other parts of Europe. And a lot of people were afraid that that's what was happening here in 1919. The Bolsheviks are, are coming. There were socialist groups popping up and. And a lot of them were anarchists, but in the mind of a lot of people, hey, these are people from Eastern Europe, and that's they're probably communists. So we get this, you know, they, they even blew up the house of uh, Attorney General, which didn't go over very well. And you get the Palmer raids, Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer and a, and a young FBI or, or Bureau of Investigation agent named J. Edgar Hoover did a lot of raids and arrested a lot of those people. The racial strife in 1919 was horrific. There were dozens of lynchings because a lot of black Americans had moved up to the north. Um, during the war years to get work and they didn't go over well when they got there. And there's a lot of, there a lot of riots. There was a terrible one in Chicago that killed 38 people, lynchings, all kind of problems. They, it was called the red summer because of all the blood that was shed. So you got all of that going on in 1919 and in 1920 in January, the economy uh, goes into that depression um, and a pretty severe depression. I mean, the, the unemployment rate, because a lot of it, you know, that these soldiers are coming home, they're looking for works. So that's going to, uh, Cause a problem and adjustment, but unemployment rate went up to at least <clears throat> at least twelve percent. One study says nineteen percent. Uh, five to six million Americans were out of work, and remember the population was just a little over a hundred million at the time, so that's pretty bad. Industrial took a, a, a nosedive. Corporate profits fell. I think ninety two percent. It was a really pretty severe recession. So all of those things. Plus the progressive reforms, it was just too much. And they turned to Harding and Coolidge, who came in with a a traditional laissez-faire uh, policy toward the economy. We're not going to we're not going to try to stimulate the economy with spending and taxes and all those things like we do now. Bailouts, we're going to bail these businesses out. There was none of that. It was to re- use what the founding fathers would have called retrenchment and. We're going to cut these catastrophic taxes and get rid of the regulations and and, and open things up. And you see that right after you talk in a book about how how did the business community parting in Coolidge's election? Well, they were ecstatic about it. And I use a lot of newspaper uh, evidence to show what business people were saying. They were they were raring to go because they knew that when Harding and Coolidge came in, that the the eight years of what they call business harassment was over, because uh, Wilson was, you know, he they, that was a pretty tyrannical regime there, and what they were doing to businesses, particularly during the war. I mean, they'd taken over the entire railroad system of the country during the war, and then just handed it back to the railroads as if nothing was wrong. And of course, a lot of them were going bankrupt. So Harding and Coos came in with their Secretary of the Treasury Andrew Mellon, who was one of the smartest financial guys at the time, one of the wealthiest men in America. And they put together this program and began to cut taxes, remove regulations and and cut spending and get a 50 percent cut in spending. And business knew um, that the Harding and Coolidge administration was on their side. And, of course, you get this massive expansion throughout the 1920s that's unparalleled uh, in our history. I mean, today we're happy if if the economy hits three percent growth. We're all happy and we think it's good. And four, where it's just, you know, 
were ecstatic about it, but they averaged 7% growth a year throughout the roaring 20s. Uh, income taxes were slashed four different times. And of course, we're told today, well, you can't do that, you'll get a deficit. Well, not only do we have a balanced budget throughout the 1920s until 1929, 1930, we ran a surplus every year and paid down a third of the national debt. I mean, that is that is an incredible uh, economic track record. Um, but yet this guy is supposed to be the worst president ever. And, and um, you know, FDR is supposed to be an economic genius. And he let a depression go on for more than a decade. And the unemployment rate never went below 14 percent. But in 1926, the unemployment rate was 1.6 percent. That's what the unemployment rate was in 1926. Now, let me put that in a little bit more perspective. Today, they say the unemployment rate is, what, 3, 4 percent. We have millions of people that are on public assistance programs, welfare and things like that. They don't have a job. The government does not consider them unemployed. And if we did, you know what the unemployment rate would be? It'd be sky high. In those days, they didn't have welfare. So if the unemployment rate was 1.6%, it was actually 1.6%. I mean, that's as close to full full employment as we've ever had. The factories were taken off. We were making all kind of cars and all kind of other appliances, and people were buying them, and, and the economy was really good. And it was really good for everybody. When you look at the numbers, and I have them in the book, wages went up for the average worker quite a bit during the 1930s, so much so that they could start investing their money in the stock market and and because there's no such thing as a 401k in those years, no social security. People were in charge of their own retirement plan. So people began to, you know, spend money. And of course, they try to say that caused the Great Depression. And that's just, that's more foolishness that I deal with in the book. Yeah. So very much a repudiation of progressive uh, economics, you know, fiscal and monetary policy and everything. And I guess the establishment, I often say that the kind of progressive academic establishment, they have their own kind of version of Whig history, um, Whig with a, with an H. Um, right. And, you know, this idea that I'm sure you're probably familiar with, but just for any listeners that aren't, the idea of Whig history actually comes from British historiography from maybe like the 19th century. And it was where the British kind of establishment would tell British history as just this like inevitable unfolding of progress and ever increasing uh, liberty and good government and all these sorts of things. And they would just sort of shape the narrative that way. Mm -hmm. And there'd be these little temporary setbacks and things, but you know, the long-term sweep of history was in a particular direction and American progressives are very much the same way for their ideology that they they think that American history is just this inevitable unfolding of their uh, version of the grand march of history and they see someone like uh like Warren Harding as you know an annoying but temporary setback to the grand yeah. uh kind of you know divine plan as Wilson would have seen it um but not just in terms of of economic policies but also in terms of uh foreign policy so could you tell us a bit about how Harding repudiated the Wilsonian progressive uh, foreign policy legacy too? Foreign policy, yeah, that's something that I wanted to talk more about really to, to delve into because it really hasn't been examined closely enough. And because Woodrow Wilson had made a complete mess of American foreign policy overseas in Europe uh, particularly, but also here in our hemisphere. 
We had destroyed our relationship with Mexico to the point they had severed diplomatic relations. A lot of other nations in Latin America were mad at us. We had occupied parts of the Caribbean. You know, the entire island of Cuba was occupied during the war. Of course, under the guise of of um, keeping the Germans from from seizing it, uh, and, and, and the Virgin Islands and other areas. And a lot of those countries were mad. Uh, the president of Mexico at the time um, called Woodrow Wilson a most terrible enemy of Mexico. And 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 of course we get the, the progressive notion of of this is where we where we have we're trying to push democracy. Uh, around the world, just like we do now in our foreign policy. Now, Harding voted for World War One, as did most uh, members of the Senate, most members of Congress. And I think he, like a lot of senators, realized, you know, we'd, they'd probably been duped um, when all was said and done. I mean, we could have stayed out of World War One quite easily. And, of course, Woodrow Wilson had said we got to stay neutral in both thought and deed, and he was not neutral in either one of those things at any time. Um, he, I think he was... Uh, Hell bent on getting into the war from the get go. He was very much a, a Anglophile, and I think people realized that uh, later on. Um, but he, but he was thoroughly against the idea that we needed to tell other nations what kind of government they should have. We can't be pushing a democratic government, republican government, onto other nations. They they're in charge of their own uh, the country's destiny. And there's a good letter he where I quote from. Where he's a letter uh, exchanged between he and, and Theodore Roosevelt about that subject. So he wanted to take us back to our more traditional non-interventionist foreign policy that we'd had throughout our existence. And he did that. And he withdrew our troops from the Rhineland in Germany. He, uh, there was a treaty struck to formally end World War One. Uh, the debt problem around the globe was so bad because we, we had loaned a lot of money and other nations were heavily in debt. So they had a, a, a World War Debt Commission, they called it, to hammer out an agreement on war debt. Uh, as far as Latin America is concerned, he uh, withdrew troops from the Caribbean and began to repair relationships with uh, Latin American uh, nations, particularly Mexico. He reached out to the Mexican president, Obregón, pretty early. He actually wrote a letter to him before he took the oath of office. In 1921. And the Mexican president actually called Harding's election a day of deliverance. And just after Harding died, those relationships were totally repaired and we restored diplomatic relationship with Mexico. So I would have loved to seen Harding serve a couple of terms. I think foreign policy would have been straightened out. Of course, he called the Washington Naval uh, uh, Conference in, in Washington, D.C. in 1921, 1922. And that was a disarmament conference conference to limit uh, the naval forces uh, of the great powers. And that had been seen as uh, one of the, one of the reasons for world war one, the naval race between Britain and Germany. And those were the feared weapons of the day. It was naval weapons. It was not air power yet, or certainly not nuclear weapons, but naval forces. And they believe if we can limit those things and not have these arms races, we can, because look at how bad world war one was. Wars before that didn't last very long. I mean, other than our civil war, I mean, wars in the 19th century were over very relatively quickly. And people in Europe in 1914 thought that war would be over within a matter of months. 
They thought it'd be over with by Christmas. They didn't realize they were about to get into the first industrial war that was going to be catastrophic. I mean, 17 million people were killed in World War One. It just destroyed much of Europe and, and recarved the map. And a lot of people in Europe and in the United States, including Warren Harding, said, you know, we can't ever do this again. We got to figure out ways not to do this. The League of Nations failed for a number of reasons. Mainly because uh, the Republican senators were, were fearful that the language of the treaty would would obligate us to go to war without congressional approval um, if a member nation was attacked. And those are the things they wanted changed that Wood, Woodrow Wilson wouldn't change. So that's the reason they got did not get into the League of Nations. But this Washington Naval Conference idea worked, and, there, and the navies of Britain and the United States and France and other uh, Japan were all limited. And, of course, they, they banned the use of poison gas on the battlefield. That was done at the Washington Naval Conference. And there were also some treaties struck between the great powers in in regards to the Pacific and Asia, uh, mainly to protect China because of what was going on in China. But it maintained the status quo in the Pacific. And one diplomatic historian has said that those treaties at the Washington Naval Conference uh, maintained the peace in the Pacific for at least a decade. And, of course, Japan's the one that ended up breaking all of those when they began their rampage in the 1930s. So there was a lot of things in foreign policy that the Harding administration was able to achieve that he gets zero credit for today. Yeah. And one thing that drives me nuts and probably I would guess it does you as well is that later generations of progressive historians, Harding is one of the guys that they often um, smear as quote unquote isolationist, you know, and they, they talk about, the 1920s and, and maybe the 30s as well as being like this, again, temporary deviation from the great march of history where, you know, Wilson was trying to get America much more globally involved. But yeah. then, um, unfortunately, we had some, you know, um, some, I don't know, I don't know, reactionary Neanderthal presidents in the 20s who backed uh, away from that, and they they use this smear that was developed in, I guess, in the World War II era of isolationist. But you know, as what you were just saying and other things uh, in in the book as well show that smear, as is so often the case, is completely ridiculous. Like he may have been a relative non-interventionist compared to a Wilson or a Teddy Roosevelt, but the idea that he was just you know ignoring the rest of the world, no, he was actually repairing a lot of the damage Wilson had done. Um, particularly with regard to Latin America and and then, you know, things like the Washington Naval Conference show like this is not isolationism. This is actually attempted uh, constructive diplomacy, um, but it's, you know, rejecting the the interventionist thing. And, and I've always thought it was strange how um, I'm trying to remember back to how this was often covered in sort of standard college uh, basic U.S. history textbooks. My my recollection is that the textbooks, they, of course, they would always be very sympathetic to the League of Nations and say, you know, what a tragedy it was that Wilson didn't get the Senate to ratify the treaty in the U.S. to join the League. But they'll, they'll then sometimes characterize the Washington Naval Conference and some of the other diplomatic initiatives of the 1920s as ridicul- ridiculously um, idealistic and unrealistic you know, they'll be like, oh, look at this utopian thing where they thought they could just make agreements to limit, you know, the size of naval forces. How how ridiculous is that? And I was always left thinking, okay, if that's utopian, 
how much more utopian and unrealistic was the entire concept of League of Nations, you know, Um, the idea that you could just create this, you know, kind of global version of a parliament and automatically that'll make um, international conflicts cease or at least cease being violent. But um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know if you have any any thoughts about that, the, the different ways that that a Harding or even a Coolidge or a Hoover after him on foreign policy is treated versus a more Wilsonian type of, well, you of know, foreign policy. Many of the Republicans in the Senate didn't have an, a problem with the League of Nations as a concept and our membership in it. Um, even Harding, there was nothing wrong with having an international organization where we can talk about international issues. But again, there problem was the language of that would have committed us to war if a member nation act or, or the victim of aggression we would have to go to war and their position was well congress declares war and it, are we abrogating congressional authority to the league of nations in other words would the president be able to then take us to war because a member of the league was attacked and they wanted some clarification and to change that language to reflect congressional power to say, well, no, Congress will decide whether we go to war or not. And Wilson just didn't like that. He didn't he didn't want any of those changes. And so they said, well, you know, if we're not going to change this, um, and if Wilson would have compromised a little bit, I think we would have joined the League of Nations. But the problem was the League of Nations didn't have really any teeth in it. And, and, and it failed to do anything with the Japanese because when the Japanese began, when they attacked Manchuria in 1931 and they were condemned by the League, Japan just did what any nation would do. They just walked out of the league and said, we're no more a member, so I'll do whatever you want to do. So what, what really could what, what could they really do? Nothing. Um, so um, and a lot of people will say, and of course, these same progressives will say, well, it was because we didn't join it. That was why it failed. No, that's not why it failed. If <laughs> it was doomed to failure, um, there's I mean, there's I think there was really no way it could have been. Well, like to reject treaty. And to stay out of it. So Harding pretty uh, effectively rolled back much of the progressive economic agenda. He rolled back a lot of their foreign policy of interventionism and started to repair some of those relationships there. Um, He also, under his presidency, rolled back a lot of Wilson's really egregious violations of basic civil liberties from the World War I era. And it, I mean, I, I guess uh, we could blame him that he didn't push for and get the um, rescinding of the Espionage Act of, uh, was it 1917 or 1918? Right. Um, would have been nice if if uh mm-hmm. is it the espionage act or the sedition act i always well, get the two of them confused yeah, the, one of them's still on the books today the other one was actually yeah I think, the the undone. espionage act is still there you know they're, they're talking about that vis-a-vis mr trump uh right the, the, and also with snowden and a lot of these other kind of right yeah this, whistleblowers. Still very much the sedition act yeah the republicans actually uh repealed that um where you can right. quit, uh quit in the government. And a lot of people um, during World War I were jailed simply because they criticized the government. They were actually put in jail, uh, a number of them, including Eugene Debs, the nation's leading socialist, for giving a speech criticizing the war in which he was exactly right in what he was saying. 
Um, Upton Sinclair, the famous author that wrote The Jungle, which most people probably have read in schools at some point in time, he was arrested because he stood on a street corner and read out the Bill of Rights out loud. And he was he was he was locked up for that. I mean, it, it was really a tyrannical time. And Harding came in and let all those people out of jail and pardoned them. I mean, he, he commuted the sentence of Eugene Debs, again, the leading socialist in the country. Um, and Wilson wanted him to stay in jail. He got the man got a 10 year prison sentence for giving a speech against the war. I mean, clear violation of the Bill of Rights and the Supreme Court had unanimously upheld his conviction and upheld the, the constitutionality of the Sedition Act, saying that, well, there was a, quote, clear and present danger to the country, to the government can act in that manner. Uh, my first thought was, when I learned of that, I thought, well, there's not a clear and pre- present danger clause of the Constitution. There's not an exception that says, well, in, you know, in a time of emergency, this all goes away. Clear violation. And people, I, I, you know, people that look to the Supreme court to rescue us. I know they've, I know they've issued some, um, um, some, 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 some pretty good rulings in the, in recent, in the recent weeks, but the Supreme court is not going to save us. They sort of didn't save us at a time like that. Yeah. That, that was a pretty bad time in the country. Well, as uh, somebody who also despises Woodrow Wilson and pretty much everything he ever said or did, uh, and, and who is sympathetic to Harding, I've always really liked the, the just the whole story of Eugene Debs. I mean, first off, I, I often refer to Eugene Debs as my favorite socialist uh, just because, you know, he took a stand against the war and against the conscription and all the violations of civil liberties at the time when it really counted and, you know, did it knowing he was likely to end up in federal prison and did. And um, I agree with you. You know, I might disagree with Eugene Debs' economic policies all day long, but you know, I think he was 100% right about the war and all the issues related to it. And the story about Eugene Debs, and, and I think supposedly when Wilson was issuing pardons and commutations for many of the people who had been locked up for free speech activities during World War I, when someone asked him about Debs, he said something like, that man will never set foot outside prison as long as I'm the president. And he kept his promise on that. And then Harding, the, the much more conservative, like ideologically much further from Debs on most issues other than maybe war. Uh, he's the guy who does the decent human thing of commuting Debs' sentence, letting him out. Here's this elderly, you know, activist, you know, just a, a peaceful, you know, political activist, not someone advocating violence, jailed for giving a speech. Um, and it's the much more conservative guy who actually is sympathetic to him, lets him out of prison, if I remember right, even had a meeting with Eugene Debs that was very cordial. And and this to me just sort of shows how Harding overall was the more decent human being in most ways than Woodrow Wilson, which is not the impression you would get if you just listen to the mainstream coverage of the two guys. You're exactly right. I mean, you know, I, I, I sympathize with Debs as well. Again, not not on his socialistic policies, but this, again, the speech he gave was exactly right. He he basically called Wilson down and and what was going on, and he, you know, received it. I mean, I, I tell people all the time: imagine that making a speech in the United States of America and getting a ten year prison sentence, and the Supreme Court unanimously upholding that conviction and the law. And Harding came in and knew that wasn't right. And in his first year, he uh, let him out of prison. And 
he had one condition for Debs, and this is something else that shows what kind of a man Harding was. He said, the only condition I have is that Debs uh, travel to the White House to meet with me here. And he did. When he got out of jail, he, he already made sure he was out of jail before Christmas of 1921. He said, I want him to eat Christmas dinner with his family. And just a few days before Christmas, he came to the White House and they sat down and and met and, and Harding was very warm and cordial to Debs and they had a nice conversation and, and Debs got out of prison and said some nice things about Harding that he was really a, a really a good man. So I think that's a wonderful story that shows the kind of man Warren Harding was, the Warren Harding, not the Warren Harding of these um, academic historians, but the real man. And I have a lot of stories like that in the book that show just what a kind, compassionate man he was and a man who wanted to do the right thing. No matter no matter what the political consequences might be, but you know to do the right thing um, while he was president. Now, of course, another knock that the standard take on Harding usually uh, brings up against him are the scandals, which I think pretty much all of them, if if not most of them, were only came to light after he was dead and out of office and everything. And um, you cover in great detail in the book, the reality of a lot of those scandals and um, how Harding dealt with them, at least when he, when he knew about them. So could you tell us a little bit about the, the scandals and what the involvement of Harding himself actually was in some of these big scandals? The involvement of Harding was zero in the scandals. Of course, as you know, as a student of history, almost every administration, whether they want to admit it or not, um, they have scandals. You're always going to have people pulling things, trying to get away with things. And there were three <clears throat> scandals in the Harding administration. There was the Veterans Bureau. There was one in the Justice Department. And, of course, the famous one is Teapot Dome. And the Veterans Bureau, this is they were you know, this is where we began the, the, the treatment of veterans. There were a lot of wounded veterans from World War One. This is when we began to build veterans hospitals. Charles Forbes was chosen by Harding to head the, the new Veterans Bureau, and he was skimming off the top. You know, he had skimmed a couple million dollars of profits, which is pretty bad. I mean, when you're stealing from veterans and, of course, not just the building of the hospitals, but supplying them with medical supplies, he was skimming profits. Harding, I have a story in there, Harding violently confronted him in the White House. Um, according to one New York Times reporter who uh, walked in on the exchange, Harding had him by the throat. Forbes was fired. Forbes went to prison for what he did. Uh, the Justice Department, headed by Harry Doherty, he uh, they were kind of selling government favors. He and his right hand man, a guy named Jesse Smith, um, selling pardons. And of course, this is prohibition, but you could get a you could get a, a, a liquor permits and things of that nature. And they had a secret little house in Washington where they were running these scams out of and. Harding found out about that and confronted Jesse Smith about it. And he had a meeting with him and he told Jesse Smith, he said, you know, you go home and get your fares in order because we're, we're going to have you arrested and prosecuted. And Jesse Smith went home and burned all of his papers and committed suicide. Somebody in the, in the Veterans Bureau also committed suicide over that particular scandal. Uh, Harry Doherty was uh, tried twice, but was never convicted after Harding had already died. Uh, the, of course, the worst one is Teapot Dome. That's where, you know, the kind of cool name comes from. You know, that's, that's one of the cool names of American scandals, Teapot Dome. I guess the other one would be Watergate. But Teapot Dome, in the words of one scholar, was rather rinky-dink compared to some of the things we've seen in recent decades in modern history. Now, the Navy had two oil reserves that were set aside for their use. The, the, 
naval ships ran on petroleum and we don't have nuclear power yet. And they set these aside just in case in a time of war we have uh, petroleum reserves for naval forces. They were under the control of the Navy Department. One was Elk Hills, California. The other was Teapot Dome, Wyoming, uh, where the name comes from. And of course, the Interior Secretary was Albert Fall. He'd been a two-term senator from New Mexico, and um, he had run into, unbeknownst to Harding and others, he'd run into a lot of financial problems. So um, he had worked out a deal with some oil uh, men to to drill on those reserves. So he got the Navy secretary, who's, who was not the sharpest knife in the, in the drawer, to transfer those reserves to the Interior Department because Hall, uh, Fall's position was, well, I'm the Interior Secretary. I, I handle the everything that has to do with outside, right? You know, the forest lands, minerals, oil, whatever. I should I should control those oil reserves. And so the Navy secretary transferred them to fall. And of course, he privately leased them to those private oil men uh, for development. And they were they, they he was pray, uh, paid a lot of money in bribes. That scandal, Harding became aware of it. In the summer of 1923, about 100 years ago, he was going on a on a tour out west. Harding um, left Washington. He went out west. First president to visit Alaska, and he on that trip while he was in Kansas, Albert Fall's wife boarded the train and and let him know what was going on. And Harding was pretty heartbroken about all of this. Uh, Herbert Hoover was on the trip as well, and, and Hoover he talked to Hoover. Hoover talks about it in his memoirs, and, and Harding said, "You know, what do you think I ought to do about this?" Um, and, and, and Hoover said, yeah, we got to We got to expose it. Let's get out in front of it and handle it. And he said, OK, when we get back from the trip, I will. Of course, he died on the trip before anything was done. And I think something would have been done just like the other two. So it's really unfair to Harding on Teapot Dome. None of these scandals he was involved in. He didn't make any money off of it. He wasn't involved in it. They try to say he was he would go over to that house that Doherty and Smith had and play poker. And that's not true. The Secret Service said that he never went to that house at any time. He didn't even know that house existed, little rent house they had where they were running their scam. So he didn't wasn't involved in any of them. And, of course, Teapot Dome broke in 1924 when he was already dead. And so it's really unfair um, to tag him with that because I believe he would have handled it in the same way. And a lot of people surmised that, you know, Harding had a heart attack and, you know, he ended up dying on August 2nd, 1923, a lot of people, even people who didn't particularly like him, thought the man died of a broken heart. He was a guy who was very extroverted. He liked people. He trusted people. And maybe that was a flaw that he trusted people too much and people took advantage of him. And I think it really, I think it really hurt him. I think it really hurt his feelings considerably that people would do this. And of course, what a lot of these historians say was, well, he was just, he was a bad uh, judge of character and Albert Fall was not a good guy. He should never put Albert Fall in the interior department. Well, let's look at it another way. Albert Fall was a two-term senator. He had been in the Senate two terms. Harding had been there one, so they knew each other, but uh, uh, Fall had been there uh, uh, an additional six years. Every senator knew Albert Fall. And when Albert Fall's name was nominated to be interior secretary, the Senate unanimously confirmed him to be the interior secretary. Not one single United States senator stood up and said, hey, I don't like this guy. Or, hey, I got a problem with him. Hey, he's corrupt. He's a, his, his, his nomination was unanimous. So if Warren Harding 
misjudged Albert Fall, so did the entire United States Senate without, again, without an objection. So it's really unfair to tag him with that when the Senate acquiesced in, in all of it. So again, you know, people do that. People fool you. And I think he was fooled. And and I think he would have done something about that. And and look, look at Grant's administration. How many scandals did Grant have? I mean, there were a bunch of them, a lot more than three. And he didn't do anything about any of them. Nobody was fired. Nobody, um, you know, he allowed people to resign and, and nobody went to jail or anything. So I think when you compare it to that, I mean, I think you have to give parties for trying to clean up, um, which turned out to be some bad choices. Yeah. And then there's, you know, the fact that uh, Harding had a mistress or maybe two. And I mean, that just seems kind of like with a lot of this old school boss hog, you know, bribery type corruption. It seems quaint from today's perspective, you know, in in the post uh, Hunter Biden laptop world and in the post uh jeffrey epstein world and all these sorts of things yeah, right you know the idea of oh the president you know had a had a secret mistress or whatever is kind of like no big deal compared to a lot of the stuff well that uh has come out recently about our quote-unquote leaders well you know and they, they try to they try to make him seem like he was this a playboy that, that that you know like kennedy had a different girl every night and that kind of thing um we know that harding had at least two affairs in his, in his life. And, you know, what his real relationship with his wife was, I mean, I, you know, who can, who can ever know that Uh, he did tell a friend one time about his wife, Florence, he said, she gives me hell every day. Obviously they, they didn't get along. I think they were more business partners. You know, his, his newspaper was very, very lucrative. He made a lot of money on it. He, He bought the paper in the 1880s for a few hundred dollars while he was president, he sold the Marion Star, which is still in existence today, uh, for over five hundred and fifty thousand dollars in that time period. I mean, that would have been six or seven million dollars today. So he had and Florence Harding is given a lot of credit for the business side of that. Um, so again, as far as their personal relationship, it didn't seem to be all that great. They never had any children together. But as far as this idea that you know, and of course, one of the one of the affairs was with Nan Britton, you know, and there was she alleged in a book she wrote in 1927 that she had a daughter that was fathered by Harding. Everybody always denied it. We know that's true now because the DNA uh, has has proven that. Uh, but this idea that Nan Britton came to the White House and other women and, and that he um, had all these uh, uh, trysts with these women. Uh, and, and a closet off the Oval Office. This is certainly not true. I mean, I found three uh, primary sources from people that worked inside the White House, including the head Secret Service agent, who said no women came in the White House at any time to see Harding. No, no, not Nan Britton, not anybody. The doorman that had to, that everybody had to go past to get inside the White House. He said no, nobody came um, to see Warren Harding. The Secret Service agent. Edmund Starling said we had him under constant surveillance. He wasn't doing any of that. He wrote in his memoir, Starling did, Agent Starling did, that he said the worst thing that I saw him do was play a little poker with his friends and, you know, maybe have a drink or two. And he said, uh, mildly curse at a golf ball. If anybody that plays golf knows it, <laughs> cursing's part of the game, I think. But he said that was, a, that was the worst things I ever saw him do. So uh, a lot of these were attacks by the opposition. 
And of course, historians that don't like Harding, they like Wilson. And of course, they've, they've run with these kind of rumors and myths to the point that they've become part of the historical record. And you can read these books that where people trash Harding and they'll tell these stories without any uh, source attribution at all. I mean, you know, if it, you don't have to cite sources if it's common knowledge. It's become common knowledge that he was a womanizer and 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 had all these different women in the White House. And that's absolutely not true. That's a myth that I had to uh, to tackle. Um, again, did he have moral failings? Sure. So does everybody else in the world. And as far as, you know, drinking and that kind of thing, he'd, he'd stopped a lot of that when, while he was president. He quit playing poker with his friends and stuff. And he got a little bit more serious about life and a little bit more serious about being president. So uh, a lot of those kind of things are not told uh, either. A previous book that you wrote was on Grover Cleveland, another president that I'm pretty sympathetic to. I'd be curious to know your thoughts sort of comparing those two, because those are are two of the maybe top like four or five presidents that old school conservatives, kind of old right types and libertarian types often point to as, you know, some of the better or at least least bad uh, presidents in American history. I'm just curious uh, how you would kind of compare and contrast Harding and Cleveland. They were very similar, of course, different parties, and that kind of confuses people a little bit. But the Democratic Party back in the 19th century in Cleveland's day, that was a very Jeffersonian party, Jefferson forward. Um, and Cleveland was, you know, he had the same economic and foreign poly, uh, policies for the most part that Harding did. Now, Harding was more of an old school Lincoln Republican, believed in protectionism and, and high tariffs and things of that nature, and Cleveland didn't. But other than that, they believed in in minimal government, that uh, cutting taxes and cutting spending, and the government um, not being paternalistic is what they would say in in, in Cleveland's day, which is what kind of which is part of progressivism. I mean, the, the, the government as sort of a father or sort of a, a you know a, a parent uh, taking care of their children. I mean, Cleveland hated that kind of stuff. And of course, in Cleveland's day, the big the big issue was soldier pensions, which um, the, pro- the progressives of the day, if you want to call them that, um, used as a welfare program. And he hated that kind of stuff and, 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 and vetoed a lot of those types of bills that spent money on these outlandish soldier pensions that people got for everything under the sun. They didn't have anything to do with their military service. It was just a way to, it was just really a welfare program. And that's what one scholar called it. So they were very similar. And, 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 and with foreign policy as well, Cleveland was a non-interventionist in foreign policy. I mean, at, at the time, people wanted to invade Cuba in the 1890s during his second term, and he flat refused to do it. And Congress even dared him one time and said, well, we'll just declare war on Cuba. He said, well, I'm the commander in chief. I'm not going to send any troops down there. So do whatever you want to do. So he was very non-interventionist in his foreign policy and, and very much a believer in Jeffersonian government. I think you can say the same thing about Harding and Coolidge. So they would probably agree on probably about 95% of their views of government. I heard you mention somewhere on, on another show that I heard you on um, talking about the Jazz Age, Jazz Age pres- the president, that you're currently working on a book related to the Vietnam War. Is that correct? Yeah, I've actually got a, a number of pro- uh, irons in the fire on that. But yeah, I want to do a book on the political history of the Vietnam War. And that's sort of a big project that I'm uh, currently working on. I've been to Vietnam five times and that's, that's a, that's a war. Of course I was a, when I was a young man, I was a, just a 
mainstream, mainline conservative. And, you know, and conservatism today is, you know, hey, we're supposed to support the military and all this kind of stuff. And, hey, we we should have been over there killing those communists, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, when you're young. But then you dig into the war, you go to Vietnam, you 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 you, you meet people, you, you you learn the ins and outs of the war, and you, and, you, and you learn all the lies that it was built on. It was just an absolute tragedy of a war. My working title is called An Unnecessary War because the thing that bothers me, particularly about conservatives, is how people, conservatives will still defend Vietnam. And I'm thinking, why do you want to defend that mess? It was the Democrats that did it. I mean, they're the ones that, they're the ones that started it and got us into that uh, quagmire. And a lot of good, good people, a lot of good families lost people in that war for no reason whatsoever. So it's not, it's not something that I'm going to ever defend. And, and hopefully in the next couple of years, I'll get that out and some other projects related to that. So kind of, kind of one of my, uh, future projects for sure. Yeah, that definitely sounds, um, like it'll be a, a great piece of work when it comes out. And, um, I'd be happy to have you back on uh, to talk about that whenever uh, you finish it up. But uh, for now, yeah, I just want to recommend to all the listeners if you want to see what um, if you've been listening to my, my podcast series for the last few years on all the horrors of Woodrow Wilson, and you would like to learn about the man who in many ways could be considered the anti Wilson president, check out the jazz age president by Ryan Walters again, just recently made available in paperback. So Ryan, thank you. Thank you for writing this book and uh, thank you for your time and coming on the show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun.